Uh, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. If you're using a chair Bible, a pew Bible, or under the chair rack Bible, whatever we call them when we have these kinds of chairs, um, you'll find it on page 59. Uh, those Bibles should be under a chair right in front of you or close to right in front of you. Um, Exodus chapter 18, we are uh, continuing this series through the book of Exodus. And um, this morning we'll look at the whole chapter. Um, it's, uh, as you know, it's our practice to stand when we, when we read God's Word together. And, and as, as you've noticed over the last several weeks, um, working through Exodus, sometimes um, Old Testament narratives are kind of long for the standing, and so we don't, and sometimes we do. This one's on the border. Uh, I'm going to ask if you're able, uh, let's stand together. Uh, as we read God's Word. Exodus chapter 18, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? And why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, 
and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, Holy Spirit, uh, this is your word. Would you teach us by it? Would you use us to conform us more and more into the image of Christ? For we ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. And every now and then the Bible um, introduces us to people, um, gives us a, a, a brief moment with them and then takes them away. Um, and it's interesting how, um, how much of an impact those people can have on us and on the people around them and on the unfolding story of redemption. Even, even in the brief moment that they spend on the stage of Scripture. Jethro is just such a person. Uh, we met him briefly in chapter 2. Uh, he's mentioned in 3. Uh, Moses has a conversation with him back in chapter 4. And then there's this chapter which really focuses on Jethro. And then we won't see him again uh, for the rest of the Bible. Uh, Moses, you recall back in chapter 4, after he uh, met with the burning bush, just to sort of reset the stage for you to kind of you know, take you back to wait. Remind me, Jethro, remind me exactly what, have we, what we've seen before. Uh, Back in chapter 3, Moses had that interaction with God in the burning bush. And God sent him back to Egypt to deliver the Israelites out of slavery. And at the beginning of chapter 4, Moses goes to his father-in-law Jethro and says, Hey, I'm going back to Egypt to deliver the Israelites. And Zipporah and the boys come with him. And then he sends them back before he gets all the way back to Egypt. And so... During the time of the plagues, during the time of of Moses and and interacting with Pharaoh and delivering the Israelites from Egypt, Zipporah and Gershom and Eliezer have been back in Midian with her father. And Jethro now has gotten word that the Israelites are out, that the Israelites have been set free and uh, are no longer in Egypt. He's heard stories and is now uh, on his way to take Zipporah and the boys back to Moses. There's no social media, right? He wasn't following this on Twitter. He wasn't following, you know, Egyptian news service on Instagram and finding out that the Israelites have left. Um, He didn't turn on his 24-hour news channel uh, no doubt, um, it, word gets around at the well, around literally around the water cooler. That's where all the conversations happen, right? That's where all the scuttlebutt gets spread, at least 
in the stories and not in reality. But in the stories, that's kind of how this plays out. Travelers would stop at the well there in, in Midian and, and to water their animals, to draw up water for themselves. They would, they would meet uh, Zipporah and her sisters, Jethro's daughters there, just as Moses had just 40-whatever years before. Moses, you recall, protected the girls from, I don't know, some ne'er-do-well troublemakers at the well. Uh, and as out of gratitude, uh, Jethro had Moses come and stay and fed him and, and celebrated and gave him Zipporah as his wife. So there around the well, no doubt, around the, the water cooler in Midian is where he got his information. He knew that the Israelites were no longer there. And so Jethro is now going to meet Moses with Zipporah and the boys. But who is Jethro? Okay, we know he's Moses' father-in-law. We know he's Zipporah's father. We know he's the grandfather of, of Gershom and Eliezer. But who is Jethro? What does it mean, verse 1, that he is the priest of Midian? Um, by the way, I should have said this earlier. Um, I hope you didn't close your Bibles. I hope you didn't put them away and set them aside. You're going to need them. Turn back to Genesis chapter 25. And let me show you um, just who these Midianites even are. In Genesis 25... Beginning in verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan. Why have y'all, none of y'all named your kids that? Um, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So Midian is Abraham's son by his second wife, Keturah. Now that's important. Because at this point in Genesis 25, there is only one son of the promise, and that's Isaac. So he's still a, a descendant of Abraham, but he's not that son. He's not the son of God's promise. Well, they come up again. Turn to Genesis chapter 37. Again, just a reminder that, that Israel bumps into these Midianites other times and other places. In Genesis 37, um, remember Joseph? Um, and he had these dreams. And, and in his dreams, um, his entire family was like bowing down to him. And remember how much his brothers loved that? Remember how much they really appreciated learning about Joseph's dreams? Well, this is what happens in Genesis 37. Um, they fake his death, right? They dip that coat in blood. They pretend that he's died, that they found his, they couldn't find his body. All they found was his, his bloody coat. But what they did, verse 28, then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up out of the pit and lifted him and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They sold Joseph to Midianite traders who would sell Joseph to Potiphar in 
Egypt. In some ways, you might think, well, wait a minute. So hold on. Moses is in Egypt to begin with because of Jethro's ancestors. Well, also because of Moses' ancestors who sold Joseph to these Midianite traders. But the catch is the Midianites cause problems for the Israelites. In Numbers chapter 25, we find Midianite um, pagan Baal worship. In Numbers 25, uh, verse 1, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to uh, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. We'll look down at verse 6. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman. In other words, the Midianites are polytheistic, pagan worshipers of a host of false gods. Jethro is their priest. Jethro is the the priest of this pagan idol-worshipping Midianite people. Every time we see Midian in the Old Testament, which isn't going to be too much longer um, after Numbers 25, but every time we see them, they're causing problems for Israel. And so it's that Jethro that comes to visit Moses and Zipporah, the, the priest of the pagan polytheistic religion in Midian. And he comes and meets Moses and they ask each other's well-being. You've got to love the, the Bible basically says, and they ask each other, how are you doing? How are things going? But imagine being forced. I'm, I'm going to say it that way on purpose for Jethro's sake. Imagine being forced to sit down and talk to Moses in that moment. What's Moses going to talk about? What could he possibly want to catch up with Jethro most about? Well, we're told exactly what Moses says. I mean, he informs Jethro of all that God had done for the Israelites. Look at verse 8. Moses told his father-in-law, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, uh, which would be, you know, the ten plagues, turning the Nile to blood, um, certainly that final plague with the death of the firstborn and, and painting the, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And, and you can almost hear Moses saying, Jeth- telling Jethro, just think about it. Every household covered by the blood of the lamb was saved. Every household covered by the blood of the Lamb was delivered. And that's registering in sort of Jethro's mind a little bit. That's an interesting truth. That's an interesting reality. But then Moses goes on, not only that, but then the, the, the struggle, the conflict, the difficulties they've had since coming out of Egypt, the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Remember the... 
We don't have any water to drink. And God provided water. We don't have any food to eat. And God provided manna, bread from heaven. Uh, we've got these Amalekites attacking us and God gave them deliverance from the Amalekites. Moses is recounting the story of God's grace to Israel. Moses is recounting for Jethro all that Yahweh, all that the Lord had done to spare Israel, to bring them out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. He's talking about God's sovereign work of salvation. Now he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't paint it all with with ah you can't mix your metaphors like this. He doesn't paint it all with rose-colored glasses. You don't paint with rose-colored you get it. He doesn't make it all pretty. He doesn't make it all nice. He talks about the the struggle, the conflict, the hardship that they've had, but he's still recounting the story of God's grace in Israel's life. And notice Jethro's response in verses 9 to 11. First of all, he rejoices for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. That makes sense, right? This is, this is his daughter's husband who's been spared. This is his grandson's father who has been delivered. It makes sense that he would rejoice. And, and, and he can rejoice without really that meaning all that much. But notice what happens in verse 10. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. Who is they? I think he's talking about the false gods. That the false gods have dealt arrogantly and, and through, by, the, by the false gods through their worshipers have dealt arrogantly with God's people. Now, how in the world would Jethro have any knowledge whatsoever about all these false gods? Except that he's the priest of a pagan polytheistic religion. Did you hear it? That guy just got converted. That guy just trusted in the name of the Lord. That guy just heard God's word and responded in faith. He's publicly professing his faith and trust in Christ. And notice what happens as a result. There's a burnt offering, sacrifices to God, and a celebrating feast. It's, it's all the indicators that Jethro just got saved. Now let me make just a couple of applications from that right there. Actually, four couple. By couple, I mean four applications so far. First, I want you to notice... This is a Gentile. This is an outsider. This is a non-Jew. This is a non-Israelite coming to saving faith in Christ. Israel has never been 
nationalistically hard and fast around the borders. They've always been evangelistic. They've always had place, room for outsiders to come in. There were Egyptians that left with Israel. And now a Midianite priest is coming to saving faith in Christ. Belonging to God's people, belonging to the church, isn't a matter of genealogy. It's not lineage. It's not heredity. It's faith and trust in Christ. A second application from this. Um, This is how the church grows. This is why we read Romans 10 just a few minutes ago. This is how the church grows. We proclaim the story of God's sovereign grace, of God's salvation, of God's grace and mercy to unworthy people, to those who have never heard it or who haven't ever believed it in hopes that they too will come to trust in Christ. How can they hear unless someone tells them? And how can someone tell them if we don't go? A third application from this If I were to ask you, who do you know? Or how would you describe someone who is too far gone for the gospel? No, you don't understand. These people are anti-Christian. They're like against... I mean, they're not just indifferent. They're against Jesus to their core. How would you describe the most sort of too far gone person for the gospel? I probably would start with a priest of a pagan polytheistic culture. Like, I don't know that I would think to go that far. In other words, there's no such thing as too far gone for the gospel. Jesus can save whomever he so intends to save. And he does so through the proclamation of his word, even to the point of bringing this guy into the household of God. And fourth, this is actually the pattern of conversion today. We hear the gospel. We respond in repentance and faith. We um, profess that faith publicly and we participate in a covenant meal. The reason we tell people all the time, if you're not trusting in Christ, if you're not a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church, then you shouldn't take communion here. It's not because this communion table is set for Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. It's because you don't want the meal. You're not trusting in the one who's represented in that covenant meal. And so there's an order, there's a pattern to conversion, and we see it play out in Jethro's life. Amazingly, it took Jethro one night of sleep. 24 hours later, he is whispering in Moses' ear. Let me give you some advice. He watches Moses the next day. So he's after his conversion, after this covenant meal, after that profession of faith, he watches Moses all day long as Moses sits and, and judges the people. And, and keep in mind, we're talking probably two million people at this point. It's not 12. It's not 100. You're talking 2 million-ish people in Israel at this time. And every single one of them are coming to Moses with whatever conflict, with whatever problem they have. Now, 
the Ten Commandments come in chapter 20. We haven't gotten those yet. But yet Moses is still leading and teaching the people in the statutes and the laws of God, verse 16. It's not like, well, we haven't had the Ten Commandments, so Moses is making it up. No, he's, he's leading and teaching and making sure they know and understand God's law, God's statutes. Any conflict that the people have, and, and when, you put, when you put two people in a room, there's a pretty decent chance of conflict. You put two million people in a camp, in a city, there's a very likely chance of conflict at any given moment. And so Moses has been the only one hearing every single case and making every single decision. And, and till finally um, Jethro looks at him and says, okay, uh, Moses, this is bad. This is not good. You can't do this. You can't go on like this. This isn't, this isn't the right way for you uh, to, uh, to lead these people. And notice the plan, verses 19 to 23. Ultimately, he says, look, Moses, here's the deal. You are still the, the, the teacher of God's statutes and laws. Uh, you are still interceding for the people to God. Moses describes his, his work as God to the people and the people to God. You're still doing those things, and you're like the Supreme Court. Any decision that these lower courts can't decide on their own, they will bring to you. And under you establish these, this system of graded courts. People who, you know, chiefs over 50, chiefs over hundreds, chiefs over thousands. I hope that sounds familiar to you. I hope that sounds familiar to you outside of the U.S. court system. Because this is why we're a Presbyterian church. This is the foundation of Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism didn't come up in the 1600s with, or 1500s with John Knox in Scotland. We actually see it in the synagogue system in the Old Testament. We see it grounded right here in Jethro's advice to Moses. Where there are men in various leadership positions and a system of graded courts. That's how the Presbyterian church works. You say, well, all right, so Moses, just run out and find any old man you can find. Just find anybody that's willing. And if they're not willing, twist their arm and make them. Tell them they don't have any choice. Just conscript them into service. Well, that's not what... That's not the advice. That's not how this works. That's not what we're looking for in leaders. Notice verse 21. There's a list of qualifications for these men. First of all, you're looking for men who are able. You know, some people just can't do this. And that's okay. That's not bad. That's not wrong. But it would not be good to have them in this position if they lack the ability. So at some level, you're looking for people with the ability to serve in the capacity that you need. But that's not enough. It's not simple ability isn't enough. Notice there's actually spiritual qualifications. They're able 
but they also fear God. They recognize God's rule and reign over their lives and over all of creation. And their desire is to know His will, to know His word, and to live according to it. But they're also trustworthy and hate a bribe. You know how power can corrupt. And usually what that means is the people with the deepest pockets are the ones doing the corrupting. I can buy your vote if I can pay you more than the guy who is also trying to pay you to vote his way. If I can offer you something in return that that you'll vote my way. Power corrupts. And you're looking for people who are trustworthy, who say what they mean and mean what they say, but who hate a bribe and won't seek dishonest gain. And so Jethro lays out this plan for a system of graded courts, which really is the model for Presbyterian church government. We actually see this paralleled in Acts chapter 6. Remember when the widows were not getting uh, served uh, the, the food and widows, the tables weren't being served and the apostles and the, the congregation came to the apostles and said, look, this is a problem. And the apostles said, you're right. It's a problem. This is bad. So here's what we're going to do. You choose men who meet these qualifications and they'll serve as it ended up being the first deacons who will carry out this mission. But our mission will continue to be word and prayer, much like Moses here in Exodus 18. It's the basis of our Presbyterian church government. But this actually has two applications beyond just our general Presbyterianism. Uh, First, when we choose officers, when we choose men to be elders and deacons here at Grace Covenant, we must choose men who are able, who have the ability, who are capable, who have some gift to to serve in that role but who meet the spiritual qualifications laid out for us in first timothy 3 and titus 1 men who are trustworthy who hate a bribe who seek to serve and honor and glorify christ in every area of their lives we don't make that decision based on well whose turn is it let's keep a roster and make sure we give everybody a chance Um, well, so-and-so hasn't done it or they're new, they're fresh. They haven't, you know, they're not tired yet. Let's throw them in there. It's very specific spiritual qualifications for the office. But the second application I'd make is this. We need men like this at Grace Covenant. We need men who are able, who fear the Lord, who hate a bribe and are trustworthy and are seeking to grow in their love for Christ and their obedience to Him and want to see Christ rule in their lives in every square inch by His Word and by His authority. We need to pray that God would continue to raise up men to serve as elders and deacons here at Grace Covenant. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word that gives us this great picture of an unlikely conversion. Um, The story 
of an unlikely convert. Uh, Father, we thank you for the reminder that your word is powerful, that it can subdue any stony heart. It can soften any hard ground. The seed can be planted and and tilled. uh, The soil can be tilled and prepared and seed planted uh, according to your power because you are at work. And so we pray that you would use us to reach the lost. But Father, we also pray that you would use us to equip the saints to raise up men and women to serve in leadership roles who fear you, who know and love you, who have the ability and to seek your honor and glory in every area of their life. We pray all of this in the name of Christ, our King. Amen.